Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, as I am every week, Adam Lowther. And today we have a great guest. For those of you that may already know him, and there's probably a lot of you that do, Paul Saunders is a senior fellow in foreign policy at the Center for the National Interest. He is an old-time Russia hand who has been looking at the U.S.-Russia relationship for many, many years. And he's he's also involved in energy innovation, something that is a big topic right now and something the United States needs to look very carefully at with that. And, you know, I got to say this. On a personal level, Paul, many, many moons ago, gave me an early chance to be involved at the Center for the National Interest and to have a D.C. presence, and for that I will always be thankful. He's a great guy and one of the nicest folks I know. Paul, welcome to NucleCast. Well, thank you, uh, Adam, for that very uh, generous introduction, and it's really a pleasure to be here with you uh, today. Looking forward to the conversation. Now, you have been watching the U.S. relationship for decades, and this sort of crazy evolution of a relationship from the Cold War to the Yeltsin era to the decades of Putin, Medved Putin, and now we have the war in Ukraine. And so as you look at sort of where we are, where we've come from, and think through Russia's motivation behind the war in Ukraine, we've had a lot of explanations for it, but how do you see Putin thinking through invading Ukraine, the approach he's taken, and where he wants to go from here? Uh, well, you know, in terms of the decision to invade Ukraine, th- there's been a lot of uh, discussion of that, a lot of reporting uh, on it. Um, you know, I, I think for Putin, uh, th- there was uh, kind of a stead- steadily accumulating pile of, of grievances against the United States, uh, mostly related to uh, NATO enlargement and uh, uh, kind of frustration at American efforts to promote democracy and, and uh, to intervene militarily around the world. Uh, you know, where Ukraine specifically was concerned, I, I think there was a uh, kind of a growing worry on the part of Putin and some others around him uh, about an increasing uh, U.S. military relationship with Ukraine, you know, that could ultimately uh, lead to a U.S. military presence in the country. Uh, and, and I think from a Kind of the the perspective of Russian security policy, I think there were some concerns about that. Um, 
you know, clearly the decision was taken on the basis of some very flawed assumptions uh, about uh, uh, the capabilities of the Ukrainian military, the loyalties of the Ukrainian uh, population, uh, and uh, kind of the uh, uh, stability politically uh, of the Zelensky uh, government in Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, uh, you, you know, because of that, as has become very uh, obvious, I think uh, Russia really failed in its initial objectives, recalibrated its objectives, you know, failed to achieve uh, those. Uh, and uh, uh, from my perspective, I think Putin at this point uh, has <clears throat> what I would call uh, really a political strategy for victory rather than a military strategy. Uh, in which he can uh, kind of afford to trade the, the lives of Russian military personnel and uh, uh, the uh, sort of kilometers of Ukrainian territory uh, that they have occupied uh, in exchange for time. And uh, he, he'll, he'll use the time to try to wait out the United States and its European allies and uh, in, in the hope that uh, Western unity will kind of erode and Ukraine will ultimately be on its own. And uh, then uh, at that time, Russia can achieve its military victory. Or, or perhaps won't need to because uh, uh, Ukraine will uh, give in. Yeah. And they, you know, we could, you know, there will be an election and perhaps, you know, a pro Russian party and president comes to power and therefore they seek, you know, resolution and, and Putin has the opportunity to say, well, you know, there's a new guy. So therefore let's settle this, that bad Zelensky guy, you know, he's out. So there's, it does seem time gives them opportunities to come up with a creative way to walk away from this. Now I am curious is you've watched now I like many others as a, somebody who looks at Russian nuclear forces over many years was surprised at the poor performance of the Russian military, the, both the air force and the army. And it wasn't one I expected having sort of watched what they had done in Syria. You know, you can, you can dismiss, you know, some of the the mistakes of the, you know, the Wagner group that and say, well, they weren't Russian forces. They weren't Spetsnaz. They weren't, you know, regular army. They weren't rifle. Uh, so what do you attribute to this poor performance of the Russian military? Look, I, I think there's a long list there, but I would start with the fact that it, it's clear that a lot of the commanders and troops on the ground uh, didn't really know uh, what they were actually doing. They, they thought they were participating in an exercise. Uh, they hadn't really planned for more than that. Uh, it's apparent that uh, uh, in many cases they hadn't really, you know, packed, uh, I mean, individual soldiers, you know, packing up their own sort of personal equipment and supplies and also units, you know, managing their supplies that, that, that they weren't really sort of logistically uh, prepared. Uh, 
for, for what they were doing because they didn't know uh, in advance. I think that's uh, a, a big part of what uh, occurred uh, was uh, just the, the Russian leadership's decision on how to run that operation and who to tell. Um, I, I think that uh, the, the war in Syria and for that matter, you know, the, uh, the, the seizure of Crimea in 2014, I think as, as military operations, uh, those were just very different uh, operations. Uh, and uh, I, I think that the lessons that the, the Russians learned from those kind of at the command level and also the experience of the troops, I'm not sure that it really directly uh, translated. Uh, I, I think that's another factor, you know, and it's also clear in some of the reporting that that's come out. And if you kind of follow these uh, debates on Twitter and there are a lot of really outstanding experts on Twitter who are, are following the Russian military very closely. It's clear that a number of the Russian military units were were basically kind of faking their their training. Uh, and, and they were reporting, you know, to commanders that they were completing training exercises when what was actually occurring is, you know, commanders were writing up reports and, uh, you know, they would sort of order the soldiers to go out into uh, uh, the training ground and take some pictures, you know, and then attach that to the report. And, uh, uh, you, you know, everybody... Uh, uh, in the military command thought that they had trained units when, when in reality they didn't. So I, I think there are a lot of factors. I'm sure there are others, but I, I would, I would kind of point initially to, to, to those as some of the important ones. Now that's one I actually haven't heard before that they were faking the training and, you know, just as somebody who spent, you know, most of his adult life either in uniform or as a, DOD civil servant, I, 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 the idea of faking training is just something that, you know, I find hard to believe that, that people would do it and then get away with it. And, and it sort of brings to mind the question, if that's something that's commonplace in the Russian military, what's, what's wrong with the Russian military and what's going on, that that's sort of a commonplace thing in, in particular at a time when you know, the Russian military and Russian nuclear forces in particular are sort of what Putin is using to push this or, or to push back against this eastward expansion of NATO. So the idea of having forces that are doing that is, you know, somewhat worrying uh, for me, right. Well, you, you know, th those are I mean, we're, of course, talking about different kinds of forces. And and uh, I would certainly have uh, every hope that the strategic you know, rocket forces uh, and, and others in that uh, uh, part of the Russian military are taking a different approach. And, and I don't see any kind of uh, evidence, in, you know, that uh, uh, they aren't uh, training appropriately in that part of the Russian military. Uh, but, you know, I think the fundamental problem with the Russian military, and it's the same problem that the Russian uh, uh, government bureaucracy has, is 
that uh, there, there are a lot of people who are uh, afraid to report upward on shortcomings. Uh, and uh, they don't want to face the consequences of, of doing that, so uh, they don't. And uh, I, you know, personally would be very surprised, you know, getting back to the question of the, mil the Russian military's poor performance you know, in, in Ukraine. I, I fully expect that in the uh, sort of early days and weeks and, and possibly longer of that conflict, that uh, every time a report moved up a level in the chain of command, that the, the number of Russian casualties was reduced uh, by uh, the officer who was reporting to, to superiors. And, you know, you, you can imagine if you have, I don't know, three, four uh, levels of, of reporting, you know, b between uh, people in the field and, and uh, uh, commanders in Moscow, how distorted your picture of what's occurring uh, would, would become. So I, I, I think that this uh, factor of kind of accuracy in reporting is one that we have to look uh, pretty uh, pretty closely at too. I, I expect that that has probably become uh, less an issue over time uh, because I think that senior leadership would kind of increasingly figure out what was going on and, and take steps to have uh, a clearer understanding of conditions. But I, I think that's something else we, we have to look at in this case. Now, in a previous episode, we had Rebecca Koffler on, and she talked about the Russian regime and described it in, in a way as very similar to what we think of the mafia in the United States, and that it's this almost like a protection racket. And as long as Vladimir Putin is providing benefits to those beneath him, he'll maintain their support. But once he can't provide those benefits, then we should expect him to be taken out. Do you see the Russian regime uh, in that light or in a different light? And then how do you think that if, if something like that or, you know, something equally sort of broken uh, is what the regime is, I, I often wonder how they can expect, you know, quality performance in a conflict against a Ukraine that's, you know, after Crimea was taken, the U.S. and U.S. special forces have been in the in Ukraine training, equipping, supporting. So the, the Ukrainians in 2014, not so hot. But, you know, they had essentially eight years to get better. And so, I, you know, I wonder how how well and we're seeing that on the battlefield, obviously, you know, they'll do against this sort of broken regime with a broken military. Look, I think as a government system, you know, I'm kind of I'm always reluctant to to make uh, analogies because I, I think they can be sort of useful in some ways and misleading in others. So I'd, I'd be a little bit reluctant to sort of look too closely to the mafia uh, as a model. But what I would say is that it's a system that's based very much on uh, 
individual officials being powerful rather than government institutions being powerful, uh, if you understand the distinction sure, uh, sure. That, that I'm trying to make there. And um, uh, I, I think that one consequence of that is that when uh, officials or particularly President Putin focus on one specific thing, uh, that, that they can be very effective in mobilizing people to do that one specific thing. And uh, they, they can get the, the Russian bureaucracy uh, and, and system kind of under control and make clear to people what the penalties are for uh, not doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, but while they're focused on that one specific thing, you know, they're not focused on other things. Uh, and because the uh, institutions are weak, uh, then there aren't good systems in place to make sure that other things keep happening while you're focused on the one specific thing. So I, I think that 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 government can be uh, effective in the areas where it concentrates effort. Uh, but in, in other areas, it, it often uh, isn't. Uh, that there are also certainly, uh, you know, issues of uh, uh, official corruption. And, you know, we've seen uh, that uh, as a factor, certainly in this conflict. You know, it's clear that there are units that kind of weren't really supplied as well as they should have been. It's clear that there were kind of central stocks of, of certain things that uh, uh, weren't as large as in reality as they were on paper. Uh, and, and <clears throat> excuse me, you know, there have been Russian officials who have been dismissed uh, and, and military officials, uh, defense ministry officials who've been dismissed uh, as a result of this. So, you know, it's clear that, that Russia uh, faces those kinds of challenges too. Yeah, it, we're you know we're we're unfortunately this is a great conversation. We're at that point of the show where we have, where we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Paul Saunders, and you're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and you're listening to Nuclecast and we're talking about the war in Ukraine with Paul Saunders. He's been watching the Russians for decades, so he's pretty familiar with them. And, you know, you bring up this this issue of, you know, we, we might call it a kleptocracy, bribes. I mean, Philip Short's new biography of Putin talks about, and, you know, this was somewhat surprising. Initially, you see him almost appear empathetic to Putin. And then as Putin takes the presidency and then 
you know, takes power over time, you see almost a darker picture of Putin develop, you know, in, in Schwartz biography. And I, you know, I sort of wonder, you know, there was a lot for me, at least he fills in a lot of gaps in, in sort of my knowledge of the specific jobs Putin had and how he sort of rose to power. But I, I wonder if his portrayal of Putin as, Almost, you know, and a, a bureaucrat who wanted to perform, wanted the Russians, R- Russia to come out of the Soviet collapse, to become prosperous, to become wealthy. And he was by and large sort of a, you know, an admirable character. And then he turns into this uh, person who has people assassinated, who makes sure that he takes out anybody who might aspire to power. Is that, you know, in your many years of looking at Russia and Putin and the state, is that sort of your take on Vladimir Putin uh, as we think about, you know, his past and then, of course, his future? Well, you know, I I, I actually I wrote a review of that uh, short uh, biography, and I, I think it had a lot of strong points to it. And. Uh, particularly in talking about Putin's early life and, and early career, I, I thought Short got uh, access to a lot of interesting sources and people and, and painted a really good portrait. Uh, you know, it's a challenge writing a book like that because over time, you know, Putin becomes less and less uh, accessible and uh, the the people who are uh, kind of close to him and working with him also become much, you know much less willing to to uh, share their perspectives, shall we say? So uh, I think it's harder over time to write a, a, a book like that. Um, you know, I, I think one of the questions that I kind of ask myself in in thinking about Putin is, you know, he he starts out certainly as a young person, as someone who is leading uh, kind of a, a relatively ordinary, if not even a uh, uh, somewhat lower class by Soviet standards uh, lifestyle. Um, he's uh, sort of one of the people, you know, if you will. Uh, and uh, I, I think during that time of his life, you know, I I kind of expect uh, that he developed a fairly good read on, let's call them ordinary people uh, in St. Petersburg, because of course that's where he grew up. And, you know, Russia is a really big country. The Soviet Union was even bigger. And, you know, uh, not every place is the same as St. Petersburg. But uh, I, I think he he developed sort of a pretty good uh, feel for for that, um, but I, I kind of have to ask myself over time, you know, as you have somebody who, you know, in the late 1990s sort of becomes uh, a senior official. Uh, in 1999, you know, becomes uh, prime minister, then he becomes acting president, then he becomes president. And, you know, 
for uh, uh, the last almost 24 years here. He, he's been either prime minister or president of Russia uh, and uh, sort of increasingly isolated, really. Uh, e even more uh, more so during the pandemic when, you know, from every available public source we see, you know, he was requiring people to quarantine for two weeks before meeting him uh, in person and the number of people who were willing to do that, you know, it was kind of very limited. So his uh, sort of personal contact with other people was quite constrained. So. I think you have to kind of ask yourself at a certain point, you know, to what extent is he really still in touch with uh, people uh, in his country? And uh, uh, clearly there are, uh, uh, you know, some of them who, who I think he understands fairly well, and there are others who he might understand less well, and still others who he doesn't want to understand, and he would kind of prefer that they move to somebody else's country, you know? Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's probably becoming harder and harder for him to understand how Russian society is changing over time. Well, look, I think it's harder for anybody. You know, I'm uh, uh, I, I will uh, reveal, you know, I'm, I'm 54. Uh, you know, I, I uh, used to be uh, a lot younger and, uh, you know, uh, there, there are uh, some things that were easier for me to understand in our society when I was a younger person uh, than uh, they are for me to understand uh, today. Uh, because our our society is changing, and I'm kind of I, I'm I'm part of a particular generation, right? Sure. And I, you know, I, I think we always have to be uh, aware of uh, factors like that. Um, and uh, in in my case, I kind of hope I'm more connected to my society, you know, than than Putin is. And there are still things that I I have a hard time uh, understanding. Let, let me, before, you know, I'm looking at the clock and we're running out of time. And so I wanted to ask about this notion that, you know, there's a, an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. You know, they want to uh, put him on trial for war crimes in the International Criminal Court. And as I've talked to some of my other uh, compadres in the, de the deterrence community, and who are also watching the war in Ukraine and our, you know, our take on this is, is that this, this is probably a mistake if we ever wanted to seek a resolution to the war that, you know, saying, Hey, we're going to arrest you. You know, if, if you leave your country and there was a, article that said he didn't attend an international meeting, I think last week because of a fear that he might be arrested, that that's, that's a terrible way to make sure you ultimately reach a resolution to a conflict. Whereas others, you know, there are others I've read articles at the Atlantic council and elsewhere that are, you know, supportive of, of this move. And I'm curious, it, is to your take on whether this is a good idea, bad idea, or the implications of it. Sure, sure. 
Well, look, there are really profound moral questions here. Uh, and I think uh, 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 very few uh, people would find Vladimir Putin, you know, an attractive uh, moral example. <laughs> sure, right? absolutely. So I, I think a lot of us would agree on that. Uh, I'm a, a foreign policy realist. And from the perspective of foreign policy realism, when I think about morality, uh, I want an outcome that I believe is a moral outcome. And uh, I'm kind of less concerned about uh, how uh, moral our intent uh, is or how moral our statements are. Uh, I want the results to be moral. So uh, kind of standing up and denouncing Vladimir Putin or, or charging him in the International Criminal Court or, or these other things, um, uh, I understand why people feel that way. I understand why people want to say those things. Uh, it, it's not that I really uh, uh, particularly disagree in my uh, evaluation of Putin's behavior. Uh, but I, I want to have an outcome in which, uh, you know, the, the smallest possible number of people die and are displaced and uh, uh, suffer the other horrors that people uh, have to suffer, of which there are very many, uh, when uh, you have a, a war underway. Uh, so uh, that's kind of the standard that I use. Uh, in thinking about, uh, uh, you know, what's most moral in this conflict. And I really worry that uh, creating a situation in which Vladimir Putin is personally isolated and has nowhere to turn and, uh, 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 you know, his only uh, hope is kind of to do whatever he can do to uh, stay in power by any means necessary. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's a pathway that leads us to, you know, a more moral outcome uh, using the standards, you know, that that I personally would would apply in thinking about morality. Everybody, you know, has their own way of thinking about morality. I respect that. Uh, but my standard of morality is, uh, again, to have the fewest number uh, of people, uh, additional people you know, become uh, victims of this conflict. Now, we had Stephen Blank on uh, a previous show, and, and one of the things that he said that he, that sort of struck me was that he thought that Russia and Vladimir Putin had to launch this war now instead of in five years or ten years because of this declining Russian population, the the declining number of males, that there's this almost this bubble that is going to burst. And so you, he won't have sufficient manpower, you know, in the future. And so now was the time for this. Do you, do you, is that sort of a, a good descriptor or? Well, uh, I, I think that Putin felt pressure to act now rather than later. Uh, I'm not sure that 
that was really the main driver because, again, from my perspective, I think Putin didn't think he was going to fight a real war. He thought he was going to fight a three-day war and take Kiev and Zelensky was going to run and, you know, they would put somebody else in charge of Ukraine and it would be over. And in a scenario like that, you know, whether you have like 200,000 troops or 250,000 troops or you know, I, I'm right, not sure, sure. That, that would be the sort of the fundamental deciding point. Uh, I, I think the time pressure was really coming more from the fact that Ukraine was getting sort of more and more integrated uh, it, with uh, the West and, you know, more and more with the European Union economically, uh, more and more uh, uh, kind of training and uh, mili- I mean military training and other kinds of support uh, coming from uh, the West. And I think that there was a, uh, a concern that it, it was just going to be, you know, it was uh, not exactly now or never, but, but uh, that the cost was going to go up uh, over time. Uh, and, uh, you know, th- this was kind of the time uh, that, that made sense. Um, that, that, that's how I would look at it. I mean, I do agree that I think there, that the Russian leadership, including Putin, you know, felt uh, that time was not on their side. Sure. Uh, so I, I certainly would agree with that kind of broad characterization. Unfortunately, we are out of time. This is the great thing about a show that tries to stick to half an hour is that you always leave folks wanting more and you don't take up too terribly much of their time. So, you know, it's a nice listen for a car ride. You know, we try to time the show to be about the average length of a car ride into the office. And so hopefully we are able to do that every day. Paul Saunders, thanks for for coming on Nuclecast. We appreciate it. It's good to see you again. Thank you, Adam. Love doing it. Great to see you. Good luck with the show. And to all you, the listeners, thanks for listening to another episode of Nuclecast. And we will see you on the next episode. Well, a couple afterthoughts in our discussion with Paul Saunders. You know, it's always Paul's a a well-thought, careful thinker who who really puts a lot into trying to take a sort of a balanced approach to any of these topics. And so it's always good to hear what he has to say and hear his thoughts. And, you know, he he offered a couple of, of points there, you know, that I hadn't heard before, you know, particularly this messing with uh, the record on chi- on uh, training efforts and saying, hey, you know, we've done this training, but they really hadn't. And therefore that came to play in the invasion of Ukraine. That was that was pretty interesting for me. I, I don't know what what y'all thought about it, but that was something that I had not heard. And, you know, it was just good to hear. Paul's thoughts, you know, we've had Rebecca Koffler, we've had Steve Blank. And so to get these three folks who really know and understand Russia and to get see the, you know, the variety of opinions that are really, while there may be some difference, there's not a ton of difference. You know, there's the the range of variation is is, you know, fairly narrow. And so I think we've got a pretty good understanding 
of the Russian state and of Vladimir Putin. And so that's that's something I found really good and sort of valuable about this episode. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.